continuing in Judges with um, this weird passage. It's, uh, it's actually a, 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 the same story that we covered last week uh, of Deborah being raised up and uh, taking down the, the king of Canaan eventually. Uh, but the, the challenge for, for me, obviously, is to preach something that isn't exactly like what we covered last week, uh, covering the, the exact same material in the exact same way from the exact same angle. Uh, but rest assured, uh, there is a different angle. Today we're actually taking a look behind the scenes of victory. Uh, one of the most prominent th- uh, themes that we've seen in the book of Judges is that God can raise up and use whoever he wants to. He can raise up and use the most unlikely of candidates. Uh, Start with Othniel. Othniel was unlikely because he was a foreigner. He was not an Israelite. He was a foreigner. And he came in. God used him to uh, rescue and uh, redeem his people from slavery. Uh, Ehud was a deceptive assassin. Uh, Deborah, she's a woman in a culture led by men. Barak, he's, he's filled with fear uh, in the face of God's calling on his life. And yet God has used each one of these people uniquely uh, in accordance with, with their personality, with who they are, right where they are. He's used them to accomplish his purposes in freeing his people. And meanwhile, God's people, as we've been going through the book of Judges, what we've seen is that God's people go through these stages. It's like the, 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 the waves of the ocean coming in and going back out. They're just going back and forth, ebb and flow. They're going through stages of blatant disobedience, uh, deliberately turning their hearts away from God, turning their hearts to the idols of the land. Uh, really what they're doing, they're, they're turning their hearts away from God who had, had promised them blessing in exchange for their obedience and cursing in exchange for their disobedience, and they're choosing the latter. And so this is an era in which God's people should have been growing and, and, and walking in, uh, in obedience to God and in the land that he had given them, but they're not because they didn't see the importance of obedience to God. And the the result was, the consequence was, uh, that they were repeatedly enslaved to the people of the land because they're just so caught up, they're so in love, they're so enamored with the things of the world that they would just simply lose interest in God. He'd take second place or third place or fourth place or whatever until they were so thoroughly oppressed by the very idols that they were worshiping and the people who owned those idols, uh, that they would finally cry out to God. And when God would step in to deliver his people from oppression to these other tribes, these other nations, the judges who delivered them would bring a peace that would last for X number of years, so many, so many years. When Ehud delivered Israel, for example, uh, there was peace in the land for 80 years. But that doesn't mean that during this time of peace and during this time of obedience, It doesn't mean that there weren't any problems that came up. It simply means that the people of Israel weren't oppressed. They weren't overcome by these challenges. In fact, we know that there were problems uh, during these periods of peace. Uh, And one of those problems apparently came in the form of an uprising of the Philistines, either while Ehud was judging Israel or while Deborah and Barak were judging Israel. And and this is where we learn about a judge named Shamgar. Uh, And I I mentioned him last week, and really there was just this one verse at the end of uh, of chapter 4. Not a lot about him, uh, or uh, chapter 3. And so then we see him mentioned again 
in chapter 5. So between chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, and the, the uh, middle of chapter 5, there's this scene of Deborah and Barak. And between these two instances in which we learn about Shamgar, we learned about how God delivered Israel from 20 years of oppression by raising up uh, two judges. Um, and so once Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, was killed, we would normally expect to read about there being peace in the land. That's what we've read in every other story. As soon as uh, the the people are set free, we read that there is peace in the land. And there is peace in the land, but it doesn't get mentioned until the end of chapter 5. And so chapter 5 is really very closely connected. It's just a continuation of chapter 4. It's presenting the same story as chapter 4, but in the form of what you would call a song of victory. Uh, And that was actually a, a, a custom in ancient culture, uh, they they didn't all have paper. They didn't. They weren't all literate. Uh, so what they would do is they would write songs as a way of commemorating and remembering the way that a battle was won. Uh, they were also written as tributes to the heroes of the war, and that's fitting because this is a tribute to the hero who is ultimately God uh, in this battle. Uh, but chapter four, if you were to go through it you only find four verses that mention God at all in chapter 4. In all of chapter 4, in all the fighting, all the raising up, you see God mentioned four times, three of which came out of Deborah's mouth when she was uh, reminding Barak of his calling and, and when she was speaking. And so on the surface, it would be really easy for us to look at chapter 4 and wonder where God was and just how active he would have been in this battle to free his people. See, on the surface, our lives can look like that too. You know, like, like we know that, that God exists. We know that he's active to some extent, but how much? And sometimes it can seem on the surface like he's just altogether absent from our lives, altogether absent from the scenes of our lives. But this song from chapter 5 looks beyond the surface. It looks behind the scenes and it reveals that God was everywhere. He was right in the midst of this battle. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. Judges chapter 5. We read, And then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, and then saying, Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, Abinoam, that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So here we just have, this is just a call to worship, an initial call to worship. They're singing praises to the Lord. But why? Well, because there was a need for deliverance, and, and God stepped in and answered. He, he stepped in and rescued them. How, how did he do that? How was this prayer answered? Well, for starters, we see here the the leaders of Israel led and the people offered themselves willingly. But the indication here behind the scenes is that the hand of God was active as the people were being delivered. They were finally willing to offer themselves up to God. See, for 20 years they weren't. For 20 years they weren't willing to, to offer themselves up to God, and finally they were. He was active in bringing about that willingness because he was disciplining his people. But he disciplined them until they were willing to turn their hearts to him and and to offer themselves to him. And so this song is really celebrating the fact that the people were finally willing to offer themselves to God 
in willful obedience, in an act of willful obedience. And so God is the one who gets all the glory because God's the one who did the work. You know that that's what truly pleases God, by the way? Is somebody who's willing to willfully offer themselves up to God. You know that's really what he wants? That, that's, that's the thing that's most important to God. He wants people who are willing to just offer themselves up freely to God. Whatever he calls them to do, they make themselves available. That's what pleases God. And so he's pleased when our will is lined up with his. And obedience requires compliance, which requires action of some sort on our part. It requires that we deny our tendency to rebel against the boundaries that God has put in place for us. On July 24th last year, just a, a year and a week ago, a train carrying 218 people in eight carriages derailed in northwestern Spain, killing 79 people and hospitalizing another 66. And after the wreck, the engineer who was in charge of the train, who was in charge of the speed and, and directing it, uh, told officials, quote, I can't explain it. I don't understand how I didn't see. I, I just don't know. He said the, the journey was, quote unquote, going fine until the train hit a curve. And at that point, he knew he wasn't going to make it without an accident. And despite his initial apparent confusion, his surprise, uh, there's actually a really simple explanation for why this crash took place. Video footage revealed that this train had been going twice as fast as it was supposed to. It was going uh, up to 119 miles an hour before it hit the curve that proved to be deadly for all these people. That's more than twice the speed limit that he was supposed to be going. So it wasn't just the speed that caused the accident. It was the combination of speed, uh, the location of the track, and deliberate disobedience on behalf of the engineer. That's ultimately what it boils down to, deliberate disobedience. And you see, God has laid down the track for us, too. And he's put parameters, he's put boundaries, limits, for the sake of our own well-being, our own safety. We, we might think, oh, you know, that's a ridiculous thing that God would, would not want me to do. Well, it's there for a reason. All the rules, all the limits, all the boundaries that God has set in place are there for a reason. And when we ignore these God-ordained limits and boundaries, Trust me, we aren't, just, we aren't just defying the limits. We're acting against the one who set them. To defy the boundaries is to defy the boundary maker. But when we're obedient to God, eager to do what God calls us to, eager to do what God desires, we prevent ourselves from being hurt and we prevent others from being hurt by our disobedience. Some people say, oh, you know, if I, if I do this little sin, it's not going to hurt anybody. Trust me, every single sin results in somebody being hurt, whether it's you or somebody else. Somebody always gets hurt as a result of sinful disobedience. And so after 20 years of being disciplined by God, the people of Israel were finally ready to stay within the parameters, finally ready to stay within the, the boundaries that God had put in place. And so their response, the response that Deborah offers here in her song, is to bless the Lord. And so God blessed their obedience by providing for them as they marched off to battle. Let's continue, verses 4 and 5. We read, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And so as God's people are, are marching down this mountain into war, the one who causes the earth, the one who causes the mountains to shake and tremble was going to war before them. And we learn here that he caused the clouds to rain, which would have created some real problems for the 900 iron chariots that they were up against. Jesus taught that our Heavenly Father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. But here we see the same rain that's a blessing to God's people is a curse, is a weapon against his enemies here in this scene. Let's continue. Verses 6, uh, six to 8. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? And so here, you know, here's Shamgar again, the guy that was mentioned at the end of, of chapter 3. And we're learning a little bit about the conditions of the land, the, the social conditions uh, during the days of Shamgar. Again, the only other place we've seen him is at the end of chapter 3, where we're told, quote, he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. And so what we see here in chapter 5 is that there was an obvious uh, social decay. There was a, a lack of, uh, of safety, despite the fact that there was uh, perhaps peace in the land. This may have happened during a time of peace in the land. Um, that is, there was no oppression by the foreign nations on Israel. But the, the highways were abandoned because of this invasion of some Philistines who were always a thorn in the side for Israel. And so instead of traveling on highways where they would be easy targets for Philistines who are waiting to, to jump somebody, the people are traveling on these treacherous roads, these byways, uh, that are just out of the way and kind of obscure. And verse 7 tells us that it was bad enough that village life even ceased to exist. That is, there wasn't really a whole lot of commerce. There wasn't a lot of activity going on in the city. Everybody just kind of stayed put in their homes. They locked the doors. They didn't want to be bothered by the Philistines. And verse 8 tells us that nobody had any weaponry to do anything about it. Not a, uh, not a uh, shield, not a sword, not a spear, nothing. They had nothing to do about it. But Shamgar, Shamgar also, by the way, didn't have any weapons, no spears, no shield, no sword, no nothing. But he had a farmer's tool called an ox goad. And he had a desire to work with God to free the people. And he, so he struck down 600 Philistine oppressors. Now as we look at this, as we look at what Shamgar did, there, there's actually a great model for us living out a calling to God uh, that we can follow along with here. Uh, if you want to write these down, these are great things that you, you might want to remember. This is, these are great keys for uh, living out your calling, what God has called you to do. Number one, start where you are. That's what Shamgar did. He just started where he is. He, he didn't abandon his village. Uh, he, didn't re, he didn't even go out and recruit help from other villages. You would have thought, you know, maybe he'd want to go to another village and say, hey, guys, we're, we're getting harassed by some Philistines over here. You guys want to come help us out? They may have said no. 
But he just started where he was. He didn't wait for the conditions to change. He didn't wait until he you know, had enough time to come up with some kind of fail-safe strategy or raise up a military. He started right where God called him, right where he was. He took what would have appeared on the surface to look like an impossible risk. Think about it. One against 600. What are the odds? They're not good. I, I don't know, you know, if you were to give it a line in Vegas, you know, without, it, it's not good odds. He doesn't have a good chance of, of coming out victorious, but sometimes that's what God calls us to do. He calls us sometimes to impossible, seemingly impossible tasks, right where we are. And some people, you know, take that as a calling to either uh, short or, or long-term missions where they can serve God, and that, that's great uh, if that's your calling. But that isn't necessarily the calling for everyone. What is the calling for everyone is the mission field that we're surrounded by. We're in it. We, we don't need to go find it. We're in it. It's found us. We're surrounded by it. You don't need to go overseas to do the Lord's work. You don't even need to go outside our city limits to serve God. It starts right where you are. Right where you are. You are surrounded by the mission field. Opportunities abound. Number two, start with what you have. Again, that's, that's what Shamgar did. He didn't have some kind of advanced weapon. He, he, he could have, uh, you know, just taken some kind of pole and sharpened it into a spear or, or taken something and uh, design, you know, designed some kind of weaponry, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't even have a strategy, apparently. He just had a farming tool, an ox goad. No sword, no spear, no shield. He had an unlikely instrument. And because of his desire to serve, uh, to serve God's people, he became an unlikely instrument as well in the hand of God. And you might think that you don't have the, the education or the resources to, to serve God either. Maybe you don't have a seminary education. Okay. Maybe you don't have all the support or resources that you'd like to have ideally for serving God. Okay. But that's not the question. The real question is whether or not, first of all, whether or not you've been called by God to do it. And secondly, if you're willing to offer yourself freely to him. If God has called you to serve, he's also gifted you and equipped you for service. And if you belong to him, he has. He's gifted you, he's equipped you for service. And all that's really required is willful obedience, offering yourself up freely to God. So number one, start where you are. Number two, start with what you have. And number three, just do the best that you can and trust God with the results. You're not aiming at perfection. You're aiming at obedience. That's it. Obedience to God. Now, I don't know if... Think about this. Do you think... What do you think Shamgar thought as he was coming against 600 Philistines? Do you think that he thought that he had a chance? I, I don't know. You know, if we'd asked him ahead of time, I, I don't know if he would have thought that it would be possible. But God isn't looking for the most qualified. He didn't find, you know, the greatest warrior in the land. He just found somebody who was willing to offer himself to God because God isn't looking to find the most qualified, worthy candidates to use. Rather, he will make you the most qualified, worthy candidate when you respond to his call because his call and his gifting are the only two prerequisites for serving. He's looking for people who will simply be obedient and trust him. So start where you are. Start with what you have. Do the best you can and just trust God with the results.
That's a model of Christian service. That's how it works. It's as easy as that. Now, do you wonder, by the way, why there are no shields or spears or apparently swords in all of Israel? The implication that Deborah's making in her song here is that it's related to the worship of other gods. And maybe this is a picture of how defenseless we become when we turn our hearts away from God. Or maybe the absence of, of human conflict, what we call peace, had become an idol. Can peace become an idol? Oh, yeah. Peace can be an idol. If it means compromising our faith, compromising our obedience toward God to attain peace, yeah, peace can be an idol. If we become more concerned with keeping people happy, pleasing people, than we are with pleasing God, guess what? Peace has become an idol. How tempting is that for us? I'd say it's, it's, it's extremely tempting. I mean, you, Paul talks about, you know, the, the dangers of being a people pleaser. And so, you know, it's probably one of the main idols that Christians have always, always struggled with. You know, we don't like to offend. We, don't, it, we, we want people to like us. We want people to like us, right? We don't want to go on a show called America's Got No Talent. We want to go on a show called America's Got Talent, right? And, and those aren't bad things necessarily, necessarily, until they interfere with our obedience to God. And what we see here is that social decay had increased. No commerce, no village life, no safe places for traveling. And so if idol, decay, if idol worship causes social decay, what does it mean when we start seeing social decay increasing? Seems to be a pretty strong indication that we're turning our hearts as a nation, as a people, away from God into the idols of the land. Do we see social decay increasing in our society? Do we see people turning their backs on God in our society? You think there might be a correlation? Our only response is to individually and, and collectively as the church turn our hearts back to God. And so while God raised up Shamgar to squash this uprising, it seems to have been a reflection of the land as a whole. And in the midst of these nationwide conditions, Israel becomes led by this woman named Deborah. She's, she's raised up. She comes up as, a, as what she calls a mother of Israel, which is just a term of honor. It's an honorary term. But now we also see why God had to go before the Israelites in war and do battle for them. Because the Israelites were unarmed. They had no weapons, apparently. The idolatry of Israel... Ironically, this is, this is great irony. The idolatry of Israel actually gave God the perfect opportunity to demonstrate his power. They were weaponless, but they had God. And God has a lot of things at his disposal. In fact, let's skip down to verse 20 and see how God used the rain as a weapon. We read in verses 20 to 22. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. See, from a, a purely natural, humanistic perspective, God may not have seemed to play a crucial role in this victory. But when you look behind the scenes, we see that God was using the forces of nature against his enemies. 
See, during the summer months, the river called Kishon would, would dry up to the point that it was just kind of a, a small trickle of a stream coming down the mountain. And under typical circumstances, on a typical summer day, this would have been a great place for Sisera's army to come with their 900 chariots and clean house. The conditions would have been perfect under normal circumstances. But the rain came down. And it caused the banks of the river to overflow and soak the ground, making it moist and soft and muddy and messy and very difficult to navigate an iron chariot through. How much do you think an iron chariot must have weighed? I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Probably 1,000, 2,000 pounds. But how hard would it have been for horses to pull these iron chariots through soft deep, yucky mud. Remember, there, there were no highways. There were no highways that would have consisted of sand that was firmly packed down. These machines in, uh, in which the enemies of God had placed their trust, these machines that the Israelites feared so much, worked against them. They got stuck in the mud. And suddenly the people who were manning the chariots were like sitting ducks. These things, these machines that they had trusted in so much had a weakness. Mud. And so Deborah continues with her song, verses 9 through 11. She says, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly. There it is again. Offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. That's referring to different classes of people. To the sound of uh, musicians at the watering places where they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. So here Deborah is basically just paying tribute to the leaders who came together under the banner of Barak to defeat the enemy. But even as she's doing this, even as, even as she's describing this kind of from a, a human perspective, she does keep God right at the center of it, right at the heart of it, remembering that he is the author of every blessing. He's the one who raises up the unlikely for the sake of accomplishing his purposes. He's the one who causes the rain to come down, ending any chance that these 900 iron chariots could do battle. And so she's calling for all classes of people, everybody, uh, to, to celebrate the triumphs of the Lord and to talk about the triumphs of the Lord, how he gave them victory. And I love that she goes through the different classes of people because that's what Christianity is too. There's no rich, there's no poor, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no, there's no nothing. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's kind of the message that she's getting at here. Everybody, everybody can be used by God. Everybody is, is on the same page as far as God's concerned. She continues. Verses 12 and 13. She says, Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. So here we see God raised up a leader and delivered the people. First God raised up Deborah, then he raised up Barak, and then the people of the Lord rallied behind them. And so this revival in Israel, that's really what it is. It's a revival. It starts with Deborah and it's spread. It starts with one person and it spreads. That's how revival works, by the way. It starts with you, right where you are, using what you have. 
trusting God with the results. And I hear a lot of people talking about how this country needs a revival. And that makes this part of the text kind of interesting and, and, and important. First of all, we need to remember that revival doesn't require us to be perfect. We don't have to be perfect people. We don't have to be strong people. If, if revival only comes when there are perfect people, you don't need a revival, right? It doesn't even require a people who are perfect to, to lead the way or strong to lead the way because the work is ultimately God's. Revival has always come through the weak, broken, sinful people who rely and who are sold out without compromise on the man who was perfect, the man who was God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And secondly, I'd say there already is something of a revival going on in this country, whether you realize it or not. Because the wheat are being separated from the chaff right now, if you look at the church overall. It's like no other time in American history the wheat are being separated from the chaff by various issues. Ten years ago, we had this group called the Emergent Church who just wanted to do things differently, and they really compromised doctrine. They were really threatening uh, orthodox doctrine, threatening orthodoxy. But that was 10 years ago. Where are those guys today? Oh, there's been a revival. There's been a turning away from that garbage to good, solid, passionate, doctrinally sound, orthodox, biblical preaching. And so there is a revival going on in this country, even if it's not what you think a revival should look like. Revival starts with each one of us individually finding out and living out the fact that Jesus is all we need, that Jesus is sufficient for all of our needs. And if our faith uh, you know, costs us everything else, if it costs us everything else to worship God in spirit and truth, then so be it, because nothing can take us out of his hand. And if he's our greatest treasure, as he should be, if he's our greatest treasure, we'll realize how worthless and how meaningless everything else is in comparison to him. And some people will see this, this mentality, this, this spiritual mentality in you, and they'll hear and recognize the voice of the good shepherd calling out to them. And so that's one way to have a revival, through God's people. God's people committing to have a deeper obedience to Him. And honestly, the only other way, there's one other way that revival can come about, and that is through persecution. Keep in mind, persecution has never stopped the true church from growing spiritually or, or numerically and from living for Jesus. Why do you think the, China, the, the church in China is one of the strongest churches in the world right now? Because for 40 years, they were persecuted. They had to be underground. If you were serious about your faith there, you had to be willing to die. We're not confronted by that. But if we were, it would spark a revival. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Let's continue. Verses 14 to the first part of 15. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Unlike the enemy, Sisera, who was leading from behind. Barak was leading from the front. 
And so these verses and passages will come to mention 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel by name specifically. And what we'll see when we break this down is really there were about five and a half tribes that responded to the call to serve the Lord. Ephraim, Benjamin, Machir, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali. They were obedient. But that means that the majority of people in Israel, the majority of the tribes didn't respond. Six and a half tribes weren't active, weren't responsive to God's call here. So we read this, verses, the second part of verse 15 to, to 18. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. I, I love that. They couldn't make a decision. They're just searching their heart. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So you get the sense that there was a little bit of indecision on the part of the tribe of Reuben. And there's a little bit of satire there, a little bit of uh, sarcasm coming from Deborah. Ah, searching their heart. They're searching their heart. They're resting on their laurels, searching their hearts. And what do they come up with? Nothing. Nothing in their own hearts. No motivation, no courage, no obedience, no faith in God. And so rather than obey what God was calling them to do, they hung out with their, sh their, their sheep, their flocks of sheep, by the campfire. Gilead couldn't be bothered. Dan had other business to attend to, as did Asher. But the thing that makes obedience to God's calling so difficult is us, is the people. Like these guys, it's so easy for us to get distracted. We, we can become so preoccupied with other things. We get so comfortable that we, we'd almost rather be enslaved and oppressed than live out the life that God has for us. Abundant blessings are found in obedience to God when we serve Him as He's gifted us and as He's called us to serve. But conversely, to sit on the sidelines, not serving, not responding to the call, is something of a curse. It's at least discipline. Look at this contrast that we get in the next verses, 23 and 24. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. By the way, who's the angel of the Lord? Anybody? Jesus. Jesus is the angel of the Lord. It's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel. Curse Meraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women. Here's the contrast. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. Now, who's Meraz? It's apparently, uh, well, it, first of all, part of the curse seems to be that they've been forgotten, and nobody's exactly sure who they are. Uh, this is the only place in Scripture where they get mentioned, and it's not a, not a nice way to be remembered. Um, how's that for going down in, in infamy? But they were probably a town or a village uh, in Israel uh, that Sisera came through as he fled the battle scene. And as he comes through, they did nothing to stop him, to try and capture him, to do anything. They did nothing. Jael, on the other hand, she was a Kenite woman. That means she wasn't an Israelite. She's an outsider. But she gets a main place in this story because she was obedient to serving God's people. 
She did what she could to serve God's people. And so the story of how this all played out, what she did, uh, is sung next. And remember that this is a little bit graphic. It's a little bit gory. Uh, but that's, that's part of the brokenness. That's part of the aspect of brokenness throughout the book of Judges. So she sings this as we continue. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailing through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she, her, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb, that's a very interesting word, by the way, kind of a strange translation, and we're going to come back to that. A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. Now, it's ironic... And, and it's very easy for us to miss this. It's ironic that the story is really uh, bookended, you know, beginning and end with, with two women, with Deborah and Jael. Uh, these are ultimately the heroes who bring Sisera down. Because in verse 30, the word that gets translated as womb, if you look at, at different uh, translations, they all translate it something different because they're coming up with a nice way to say female sex slave. That's what this term literally means. So apparently Sisera was actually known for kidnapping girls, kidnapping women, and selling them off as sex slaves, one or two per man in his kingdom. And so how fitting is it that God raises up two women to deliver Israel and bring his reign of terror, bring Sisera's reign of terror to an end? Godly women are treasured by God. God is not a sexist. No matter what anybody tells you about what the Bible teaches, God is not a sexist. Godly women are treasured by God. They are loved by God. And here we see they're used in mighty ways by God. Now, actually, as we conclude this and wrap this up, there are two conclusions that I want to bring us to in this text. The first is simple. God is the one who is glorified when his people work together in response to his calling to accomplish his purposes. See, yeah, God, God is working, but the people had to come together, and God was instrumental in causing the people to come together. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says he's done the same things with us. God is glorified. He's the one who gets the glory in this story. And God is glorified when God's people work together to do his will. Secondly, we see that chapters 4 and 5 are really the same story told from different perspectives. Chapter 4 is a human perspective, looking at it just purely as a natural event, pretty much, while chapter 5 is looking at it from God's perspective. So let me ask you this. Which one of those two perspectives do you have as you look back on your own life? Do you see it from just a naturalistic, humanistic perspective, or do you see how the hand of God has been active. Look back on your life for a moment. 
Are, are, you looking to, are you looking behind the scenes and seeing how God has called you? How he shaped you? How he disciplined you? How he humbled you? How he equipped you? And prepared you to serve him wherever you are right now. Wherever you are, where, whatever you've done, wherever you are in your walk, you don't have to be a mature Christian. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, whoever you are, God can use you. God can use you, and he's calling you. He's called all of his people into service. That's why he gives us gifts. That's what the spiritual gifts are all about. It's for service. So how can you serve God? Well, first of all, there are two ways of serving him. There's inward and, and, and outward. First of all, we should all be witnesses for him in the world, living lives that are uncompromisingly committed and centered around him and bringing him glory wherever we go, not just within the, the walls of, of a church building. So that, that's, that's an outward, outward service, serving God by serving people outside the walls. But God has also designed us and equipped us and called us to serve one another. And this is what I had asked you guys to pray about last week. Because we have a lot of opportunities right now for service. And when we started this series, I said that we would get to this eventually. Uh, I've, I've kind of narrowed the list down. But we have a lot of needs here for service in our church. First of all, we need small group leaders. We're going to be starting up small groups again next month. And we're looking for leaders. Uh, last year, I led one. Uh, this year, I, I'm hoping to kind of bounce between the groups, honestly. Uh, not necessarily leading just one group, but being able to bounce between so that you know, I can have fellowship with all you guys. We need small group leaders, at least two, possibly three. We're looking at possibly having a small group on Sunday morning. It's kind of like Sunday school, uh, meeting downstairs. Uh, we need people to prepare communion. Uh, we need people to do computer slides. Somebody has to sit back there and do computer slides. We need kids' church teachers. We need youth group leaders. Again, that's something that, that I have done. It's something that I, I could continue to do, but I don't want to rob you guys of the opportunity to serve. And so that's a legitimate ministry. That's a great opportunity for ministry, leading our youth. And that's not even, by the way, necessarily the end of the list. I mean, the opportunities are only limited by your imagination and your calling. I mean, if there's another ministry that you want to see uh, get started... Come talk to me. That, that's part of my job description is, is finding opportunities for ministry for you guys. So talk to me. If there's something that you feel uh, the weight on your heart for, let's talk about it. If there's a ministry that you want to participate in, don't just keep it to yourself. Talk to me. Talk to somebody on the board. We'd love to give you any help that you might need to, to get started with a ministry or, or uh, help participating in a ministry that's already in place. You know, God doesn't call us to do absolutely everything. That's a lesson that I'm learning, by the way. God doesn't call us to do everything, but he does ask us to do what we can. God saved us from himself, from his wrath, by sending his son. He saved us by himself, God in the flesh, on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our sin, and God saved us for himself. He saved us from himself, by himself, and for himself, for serving him. And there's honor and joy in being used by him, and God is the one who's glorified when we work together and serve him by serving others, by, by standing alongside each other, 
and serving God and serving one another. And so may we respond with a heart that's willing, that's willing to be obedient to what he calls us to in order that he may be exalted and glorified in our lives as we grow in the likeness of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so easy for us to feel absolutely useless. And Lord, even even to this day, I sometimes feel like that. It's so humbling, Lord, to be loved by you and even more humbling to be used by you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts to service, to serving you by serving others, by serving your people, by reaching out into the world. However you may call us, Lord, may we respond with obedience. So I pray, Lord, that you would just use your Holy Spirit to convict us in our hearts of our calling, of our purpose in serving you. And may that be used, Lord, to grow us in the likeness of your Son. Teach us, Lord, to be willing. Teach us to be obedient in order that you may be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.